Food security is a daily challenge for millions of Americans, but the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated a myriad of issues for those same people and the stakeholders who work with them. Keeping America Fed has been looking at those issues and how they're being addressed locally and at the state and federal levels. Today we're talking with Lorene Ritchie and Maria Boyle. Lorene is director of the Nutrition Policy Institute and is a cooperative extension nutrition specialist in the Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources at the University of California. She's devoted her 30-year career to synthesizing and conducting research to inform nutrition policy and programs. Maria is a senior associate here at APT. She has over 20 years of experience working on programs, policies, research studies, and evaluations related to nutrition, food security, and food assistance programs. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Eric. We're so excited to have Lorene with us today. Yes, and Lorene, you want to tell us a little bit about MPI? Sure. So uh, the Nutrition Policy Institute is um, dedicated to understanding how to make food insecurity not a problem, to improve nutrition among populations, and to address the systemic and environmental impacts of our food system on what and how we eat. So if you think of health, um, it is really a form of wealth. And, um, and like other forms of wealth, there's huge disparities. And what we see is uh, epidemics of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, all of which are preventable, all of which are largely caused by what we eat. Those things are not equally distributed. Um, Low-income um, populations of color face those challenges more than other populations. So the research we do at MPI is to try to figure out um, how we can improve the federal nutrition programs because they reach the most children and low-income populations, how we can nudge the food system and environment to influence what we eat and drink, and how we can better understand um, what impacts those different programs and interventions have on populations. So, Lorene, we've seen uh, during COVID, and Marie and I have talked to uh, previous guests about this, how uh, different programs have made adjustments to help ser continue serving people. Um, what do you think about the viability of continuing uh, those adjustments into the future, even beyond COVID? You know, is this an opportunity for us to uh, maybe make some gains in the issues you were just describing? Um, I think we're going to have to evaluate that. So um, we're yeah. going to lean on folks like you at APT to help us figure out how to collect that data and interpret the findings. But what we're seeing, for example, and I'll, and I'll just focus on children again, because that's the mm. yep. area that, that we target in on at NPI, because <laughs> by the time you're two or three, um, these things are immutable, but your dietary patterns are pretty much set. So if you aren't focusing on the youngest kids, um, it's, you know, then you're changing bad habits instead of um, establishing good ones. But uh, in terms of children, what we're seeing, um, I'm going to talk about WIC and the Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, and the School Meals Program. So you probably know that um, nearly every school in the nation um, has a school lunch program that is federally subsidized. About half of schools also have a school breakfast program. Um, these meals in pre-COVID, um, you know, anybody could purchase them, but they were free or reduced price um, to low-income kids, and those were the kids that mostly consumed those meals. 
uh, during COVID, what we've seen is that schools have been granted waivers so that they can allow anyone to have the school meals, whether they were free, reduced price, or paid students. And in other studies that we've done looking at what we call universal meals, we see that has a huge benefit to all children. So it would be uh, one thing if, um, if most American children ate a healthy diet, but they don't. And every single study that's been shown to compare school meals versus what kids tend to bring from home have shown the school meals to be far superior. So I think we have a huge opportunity to learn from the, the provision of school meals, the central role that school meals play in children's lives to understand how perhaps universal free school meals could be a way to increase the nutritional quality for children and reduce food insecurity um, across the board. You know, when, when children go to school, they don't, they don't pay for their books, they don't pay for their pencils or their equipment. We don't make some kids pay and others get it free. And so, uh, Lorene, you know, what do you think are some of the lessons learned that we could sort of pull out from, you know, from these changes that are happening during COVID with the school meals? Like, what are things that we as researchers and as evaluators would want to take into consideration? Because I think, you know, we know up until this point that actually school meal, part of, you've probably seen these statistics too, that the school meal participation in the spring when people went to completely remote actually decreased quite a bit. The number of school meals that were being served went went down quite a bit compared to the same time as in previous years, right? So, you know, what what lessons learned can we sort of glean from what's happening now that we could sort of, um, you know, we could uh, put into place, you know, once we're past the uh, pandemic? The pandemic, yeah. yeah. So the, 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 Likely explanation for the decrease in participation is because as people weren't coming to the schools, right. um, then they would have to actually go out of their way when they weren't bringing their kids to the school to pick up those meals. So some lessons learned, convenience. Yeah. Um, this, <laughs> another, <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you guys probably know that you know, the percentage of families that have dual parents working or single parents working has increased dramatically since mm -hmm. when we started these school meal programs. There's no longer typically a, a an adult at home who can pack a lunch or be there for kids right. at home and eat lunch. You know, those days are gone and they're probably not coming back. Um, so convenience is huge. So I think, uh, there's opportunities for us to understand how to meet families where they are, how to make those school meals convenient, how to promote them as nutritious. So I think there's opportunities to understand how to promote them to parents, how to demonstrate their convenience, how to demonstrate the cost effectiveness of it, and then also how to demonstrate the impacts on child nutrition when everyone has access to them. Yeah, that's great. And, I, you know, we've done a lot of studies at App where we've looked at kind of the costs associated with providing, you know, school lunches, school breakfasts, the food costs, the labor costs. And I'm wondering, you know, that is one thing that I've been thinking about quite a bit is sort of, you know, in this time where 
all these meals are now being offered to free for everybody. What does the cost structure look at that? And how can we sort of, you know, how can we begin to document that and say, you know, here is what the cost picture looks like when all the meals are being offered to the children for free? Because I think that often does make a good argument for making any kind of policy changes to programs is that cost piece. Absolutely. Cost is yeah. essential. More Americans are sick right now than they are healthy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, half of adults have diabetes or pre-diabetes. More than half of adults have cardiovascular disease. Over 2,000 deaths each day are from these preventable illnesses now. Right. You know, so the numbers are staggering. And I think those make that makes people also at higher risk for you know, complications from COVID as well. You know, Absolutely. they're sort of all those chronic disease, obesity pieces, as well as, you know, the food insecurity that's tied into what's happening. It all kind of comes together and makes, you know, makes for even greater problems if someone does get, you know, the coronavirus. Everything we're trying to accomplish depends on a healthy workforce. And right now we don't have it. So yes, I think the school meals are going to, if we provided them free to everybody, it's going to be at a cost, but the cost savings are huge. Right. Um, you know, the cost to, to businesses for all these um, preventable diseases has been estimated to be around $100 billion a year. So um, it's a little bit hard to make those connections between... Uh, investing in those school meals and the savings you get at, at the other end. But I think doing more of those modeling studies, um, such as Harvard is doing with Choices, to be able to demonstrate to decision makers that, yep, you can make an investment now and it's going to pay off in the end. Um, I think that would also be a really great thing that if APT could do that for mm. us. Well, Maria, you've talked about the cost of food um, going up. You know, if kids are getting free meals, what does that do for a local economy if parents aren't having to, to buy that food, for example? Right. And I think, you know, that's something we've been thinking about, too. And, uh, you know, I know that in the beginning of the pandemic in the spring, we did see that a lot of the food prices initially went up. And I think, you know, having ways that families can continue to get food and get free meals, that'll really help with, you know, what they're able to spend their money on. And I think, and I, I don't know if you've seen this, Laureen, um, in any of your work, but I, I do feel like those prices in the initially went up in the pandemic and may have stabilized now at this point uh, for parents. But I think that's something that, you know, we all still need to be looking at. Um, given all the other issues that many families are facing during the pandemic, including food insecurity, if the prices of foods have now increased as well, that makes the access to those sort of, you know, to the to the free foods, to, um, to free meals through schools, through childcare, just so much more important. Absolutely. Um, and you know, it's interesting uh, what we hear for, for example, from WIC participants, this is mm -hmm. the program that's designed to, to help um, women during pregnancy, postpartum, and then young children. And, you know, we often ask WIC participants um, in different surveys, we've asked them questions like, uh, you know, what are barriers for you for eating more fruits and vegetables? So, you know, they get nine to $11 per month for fruits and vegetables. And, you know, $9 for a kid is maybe a quarter of what the recommended amount is. So yeah. 
you know, it's, it is a supplemental program, but we've asked parents about this and, and, and resoundingly, they say, no, it's not the taste of fruits and vegetables. That's the barrier. It's not that I have to, you know, that they're perishable or that I have to cook them or prepare them. Those I can deal with all that. What it is, is the cost and the cost is high um, in the grocery store, but it's also a cost in terms of the perishability, right? It's not going to, it's not like I buy a preserved uh, processed food that can sit in my shelf for, for many, many <laughs> months. What we clearly hear from the WIC participants is that they want um, more of their WIC benefit for fruits and vegetables. So that tells me that we have a lot of things to investigate. You know, what, what if we switched some of the WIC food package to fruits and vegetables augmented that? Would that result in more satisfaction with the program? more people coming to WIC and um, dietary impacts in terms of mm-hmm. kids and mothers eating healthier fruits and vegetables. So I think those are also things apps could help with evaluating, you know, I would call them nudges or tweaks to programs. The programs right. are here, they, they have an established impact. We know they work, but what can we do to make them just a little bit better to make the dietary impacts a little bit stronger and to make the, the program work a little bit better for participants. No, I think that's great. And, you know, we have done a lot of that work in the past, so it would make a lot of sense for us to continue to do that work. And, uh, you know, I know that right now you're doing, you know, you're kind of asking questions of uh, WIC participants around uh, about what's happening for them in the pandemic. We'd be curious to hear, you know, how have things changed for WIC families during the pandemic in terms of foods and food food availability and um, what have been some of the challenges that they've faced? Um, So their number one concern is employment, um, but they also face some additional barriers that that we haven't quite figured out. So some of them, for example, have complained that yes, they had a really hard time finding WIC foods at the beginning of the pandemic. So the WIC food package includes staples like uh, milk and eggs and peanut butter and grains and Mm. and, and in addition to fruits and vegetables. They weren't having so much trouble finding the fruits and vegetables, but you'll remember at the beginning of the pandemic, some of those staples were off the shelves. People were- Right, like the milk and the eggs were really tough. Yeah. They were. And and even some of the other brands that they were looking for, uh, which tend to be the cheaper brands, you know, people were- we're buying those in, in bulk and, and then the WIC participants who uh, have to buy specific types of, of brands um, weren't able to find them. But even after that Im- initial emergency happened, um, you know, transportation is an mm-hmm. issue for a lot of WIC uh, participants. Um, they may be relying on friends or family to drive them to the grocery store. They may be t- taking public transportation. Um, a lot of those options went away during COVID uh, and and there's still a lot of concerns about using public transportation or yep. you know, getting in the car with other people that, that aren't in their bubble or in their family. I did also want to ask, Lorene, I know you've done a lot of work in um, a lot of research in the child care arena and the, the child and adult care food program. Um, you know, we are at App just finishing our study on nutrition and activity 
um, in you know in childcare, where we've looked at family daycare homes, uh, childcare centers, Head Start programs, and the foods and beverages that are being offered in those programs, as well as you know opportunities for wellness and physical activity. And I think, you know, one thing that is when we think about sort of parents as consumers and how they've relied so much on foods and beverages and childcare to, as they've been working and to help address food security. And, you know, we've seen that in our studies, you know, what does this pandemic mean for those parents that can't get childcare or who have relied on those meals so much? Yep. It's just another stab in the back, isn't it, Maria? Because when they can't, then, uh, you know, so they're losing their jobs or their wages are cut because they're furloughed. They can't get, it's harder to get school food. It's harder to get childcare meals because your kid's not going to childcare. It's no wonder that we're seeing food insecurity rates rapidly increase. Um, One of the things about the child and adult care food program that I think would be wonderful if ACT could help us understand better is how to get more childcare centers and homes on the program. It's kind of uh, one of those, it's a fabulous program and it's kind of a secret because (laughs) (laughs) it's not a well-known program. Most parents don't know. It's promoted. Um, You know, I'm sure if parents knew that if a center or home participates in CACFP, their kids will get better nutrition, then they would ask for that and, um, and look for it when they were looking for childcare. We've looked at nutrition and standards across different states. They're not consistent. So that's a huge area for research, I think. And like you said, as more and more children are in childcare, it's gonna be more and more important to, like we have done with schools and we have nutrition standards for the meals and and snacks served there. We need consistent uh, standards for the meals and snacks served in childcare. So I'm also thinking about during the pandemic that these family daycare homes you know, not only are they, are the families who get childcare from those homes impacted, but those family daycare homes then have lost all these, all this income um, from, you know, not being able to provide childcare anymore because children aren't, you know, parents aren't sending their children to childcare. And, um, you know, I just think there's kind of some food and nutrition, food insecurity, nutrition issues as well for, um, you know, those family daycare home owners or the folks that run the family daycare homes as well. Yep. Um, family daycare home providers, uh, you know, that's a it's, a it's a wonderful business. We are thankful and indebted. They're really heroes, but it's not a, a very lucrative business. That's right. You know, the pandemic has impacted that group, too, in terms of their nutrition and food insecurity. I think we used to do a, a study, uh, the early learning uh, study at Harvard, where we, we sort of measure some of those impacts more broadly, not on the nutrition level. But not on nutrition, right. right. The ELSA, the ELSA yeah, exactly. study, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, family child care especially, it's a tough, tough job. They, it's hard to find time for training. In California, um, you have to have, to become a child care provider, you now have to have one hour of nutrition training. But before, a couple years ago, you didn't have to have any nutrition training. Mm. So we're kind of putting um, providers in a tough position of saying, you need to do all this uh, feeding healthy foods and figuring this out, but we don't provide very much support for them to figure out how to do that. So I think that's another area right for research. How can we create a, a, 
uh, programs where it's it makes it easier for the family child care providers to do the right thing. Well, you, the, I, this is the last episode of our mini series, and uh, I think it's great that we that we're leaving with so much to do, <laughs> so much on so much on our plate, so much we could look at. Uh, <laughs> I right. like the so much on our plate metaphor. Yeah, that's, that's good, right? <laughs> I'm a writer by trade, so, you know. <laughs> uh, Lorene, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I, I know you just said it's the last one, which I hadn't known, but I, I think it's important that we do more of these things. Mm. Um, yeah. COVID has given us an opportunity to, to really see in a, a, a short time span, how important health is, like you said, uh, the, the, the folks that are most often succumbing to COVID are the same folks that have all these pre-existing conditions exactly. that are preventable. That's right. yep. um, so it really shines a light on how much work there needs to be done and how much research needs to be done to figure out how to make Eat healthy eating easier for people. Maybe we could. Maybe we can do this more often, Eric. Huh? This this is the end of season one. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good note to go out on. So thank you again, and thank you to everyone out there listening. <laughs>